Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 this morning, we'll be considering verses 1 through 23. So Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Well, please pay careful attention for this is God's word, God's holy and inspired word to us this morning. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you, uh, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, when was the last time that you enjoyed a special meal? Maybe it was an anniversary, a birthday, a holiday, graduation. Now, of course, these meals are a means of nourishment. We need to eat, and and so we do draw strength from such meals. But they're much more than that, aren't they? These meals are celebratory. They're festive. We ordinarily eat and drink things that we wouldn't eat and drink on a normal Tuesday night. 
They're festive, they're celebratory. And at such festive celebratory meals, we take a break from our ordinary routines and activities and reflect upon the past. And this really is what we're supposed to do when we celebrate a meal on a holiday, whether it be reflecting upon a, a, a date in our Lord's life, Christmas, Easter, or whether we're reflecting upon our history's, our country's past, the 4th of July or, or uh, Thanksgiving. Time for us to reflect upon the past. Think of your anniversary. Maybe when you have an anniversary meal, you reflect upon God's faithfulness to you as a couple. But these meals also serve as a way to look forward to the future with expectation and hope. Again, think of an anniversary meal. You might, as a couple, think about the future, the next season of life, and your shared vision for that future. Well, these meals aren't just a chance to look in the rearview mirror and a chance to look forward. They're also a chance to enjoy the moment, to enjoy the good food and the good company that's before us. These meals are meals that ordinarily we don't uh, celebrate with complete strangers. Usually these are intimate meals, meals with our closest friends and, and family. Well, here in this passage, Jesus is instituting a meal. A meal. And yes, this passage traditionally, uh, or this meal is re traditionally referred to as the Last Supper, as Jesus is celebrating this Passover with his disciples before he will shortly go to the cross and then subsequently uh, rise from the dead and, and ascend into heaven. But this meal also serves as the first supper because it's this meal that his disciples will continue to observe and celebrate even after he ascends into heaven. And more than that, this meal will be celebrated even after the death of the last apostles by the new covenant Christian church. It's a meal that we observe and celebrate together. This is a meal for the church between the two advents of our Lord. So yes, in one sense, it's the last supper, but in another sense, this is the first supper. Jesus is instituting a meal, a meal of, of nourishment, a meal that's festive in many ways for the church. And this meal is in a league of its own. It's categorically, categorically distinct from the common meals that we observe in our ordinary life. However, it does share many analogies with a festive meal that we might observe on an anniversary or, or a, a holiday. And so what I'd like us to do this morning is to reflect, reflect upon this meal that Jesus is instituting for the Christian church in this age. We'll notice that this passage begins with this note that the religious leaders of Jesus' day are seeking to put him to death without the crowd knowing about it. Again, they fear the crowd. They fear that if they outrage the crowd, the crowd might pick up stones and try to stone them as blasphemers, as going against the will of God. And they recently tried to do this by asking Jesus that, that question, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? But that question didn't work. And so they're back to the drawing table, scheming how they can uh, get rid of Jesus without enraging the crowd. And their answer comes in the form of Judas. <laughs> Judas Iscariot, because in verses 3 and 4, we learn that Satan has entered Judas. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 4 of Luke's gospel, a long time ago, back in chapter 4, Jesus was led out into the wilderness to be tempted. 
And we learn in chapter 4, verse 13, after Jesus sustained these temptations in the wilderness, the, the devil left him until a more opportune time. That's what Luke tells us. The devil left him until a more opportune time. And we, it seems to be that this is that more opportune time. Satan thinks this is his chance as he enters Judas, who will be the one who betrays our Lord. Uh, the serpent, the devil thinks that this is his opportunity where he will crush the head of the seed of the woman and not the other way around. And so right from the get-go, this passage starts off with this ominous note. The betrayer is at hand, and it's going to come from Jesus' inner circle. Well, in verses 7 through, 14, uh, 7 through 13, Jesus instructs Peter and John regarding how they should prepare for this Passover meal. And we have four references in this, these verses, verses 7 through 13, four references to how one should prepare for the Passover. So this indicates to us that we should probably think a little bit about how the Passover was prepared at this time in the first century. Now, during that, the Hellenistic period, which was the period in which Palestine uh, was influenced by Greek culture and ideas, the Passover no longer was a, a meal celebrated in haste, but rather was an elaborate meal. It was a meal that functioned more like a banquet. It had couches and, and pillows on which uh, members of, of celebrating this meal would recline upon. It had wine to drink. It was a festive banquet. It was elaborate. In fact, in verse 14, we read that when the hour came, Jesus himself reclined at table. This is the posture one would take when they're feasting at a great banquet. And we know that the places next to Jesus at this table would have been considered the places of honor. Hence, the disciples' arguments in verses 24 through 30 about who among them is the greatest. They're arguing about who gets to sit in those places of honor nearest to Jesus. And so this is a great banquet. This is an elaborate feast that's being prepared for Jesus and the disciples. So what does this teach us about, about the Lord's Supper? Well, it teaches us, first of all, the Lord's Supper is a meal. It's a meal. It's a meal. And Jesus here, uh, we'll see in a few moments, he, he consecrates the bread and the wine. Now, of course, there's many other elements to this meal, but it's the bread and the wine that he consecrates, that he imputes theological significance to, the bread and the wine. Now, why the bread and the wine? Are, are these arbitrary symbols or is there significance to them? Well, think about the wine. Wine in, in almost every age and culture functions as a celebratory drink, does it not? Wine is served at banquets, at feasts, on festive occasions. So this wine denotes the festive celebratory nature of this meal. And yes, there is that ominous note to this meal, but it also was being prepared as an elaborate great banquet. And so the wine denotes this festivity. And the wine also, as, well, as one theologian has, has noted, uh, captures the bitter-sweet nature of 
what's going on here in the historical context and what will go on at the cross. Wine is bitter, is it not? And it denotes that element of betrayal that Jesus will encounter in a few short hours. It denotes the fact that Jesus did have to die on a cross. But wine is also sweet because at the same time that Jesus died, he accomplished salvation for his people. So the wine itself is significant. It's significant. Bread, what does the bread signify? Well, bread in almost every age, every culture is a staple food, a food that denotes nourishment. And so this supper is a meal. It's a meal that is meant to nourish us. And the purpose of this meal, the Lord's Supper for the Christian church, is not to nourish our physical bodies, but to nourish our spiritual souls. Of course, these disciples, Jesus, they sat down at this meal to, in part, be physically nourished. And so we dine at the Lord's table to be spiritually nourished. And thus, this meal, the Lord's Supper, is a meal that's both festive and nourishing. It's both festive and nourishing. That's at least one thing that we can draw from the preparations that uh, were undergone to prepare for this meal and the bread and the wine that were used in this meal. It's a festive and nourishing meal for us as a pilgrim people. But in verses 15 through 18, as, as Jesus gets to the the consecrating of, of the bread and the wine, we learn that the supper is a time for us to look forward, a time to us to look forward to a, a particular event with expectation and hope. The Lord's Supper is a time to look forward to the future, to look forward to the future. So if you look at me in your Bibles at verses 15 through 18, <clears throat> we read, And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus here is, is saying that this supper is meant to, to, to foreshadow for the disciples his second coming, that age to come, when Jesus will sit and dine with us again at the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is exactly what is said in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. We read, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The age to come is described as this great banquet that we will have a seat at. Jesus already referred to that, that age to come as a banquet in, in Luke chapter 14 when he was dining with the Pharisees. And so the Lord's Supper, one of the purposes of this meal is to pinch us awake, to be that slap on the face, that splash of cold water, uh, to, to remind us that this world is not all there is, as we thought about last week. This world is not all there is, but rather we are a people waiting, waiting for the appearance of our blessed hope our Lord Jesus Christ, waiting for Christ who will on that day transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So the very power that will enable Christ to subject heaven and earth under his lordship is the same power that will be used to transform your bodies, your actual human nature, 
to resemble the human nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. The time, as 1 John 3 says, that we will, uh, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. So the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are a people waiting, waiting for our blessed hope, a hope that's sure and steadfast, not something that's up in the air, but something that's sure. You have a, a certain hope of Christ's return. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that reality. Reminds us that one day we won't just be eating bread and wine, but we'll be uh, sitting at this great banquet table with Christ himself. That's our hope. The Lord's Supper calls us to look forward with expectation, to look forward with hope. The Lord's Supper also tells us to look in the rearview mirror, to remember, to remember the past, to remember the past. So again, in verses 19 through 20, Jesus, he says, this is my body. As he's you know, holding this bread, he says, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus says that one of the purposes of this supper is for us to remember. Remember what? <laughs> Well, remember that event when his body will be broken. Remember that event in which his, his, his blood will be spilt on our behalf. The crucifixion is a time to remember, to remember Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and atonement on our behalf. It's a time to remember. Now, these disciples, likely who would have been steeped in the Old Testament and for any Jew steeped in the Old Testament, this idea of a new covenant being established by blood would not have been a foreign idea because covenants ordinarily were established with blood. In fact, in the Old Testament, whenever you come across the phrase, the making of a covenant, literally it's the cutting of a covenant. Animals would be sacrificed, would be literally cut to establish a covenantal relationship. So boys and girls, when was the first announcement of the gospel? We, we uh, talked about this a little bit uh, at Catechism on Wednesday, but it, it comes in Genesis 3.15, does it not? That's what our question and answer 19, which uh, you're working on memorizing, says that the gospel was re first revealed in paradise. Genesis 3.15. Where God, as he's speaking to the serpent, promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Of the serpent. You can think of that as the thesis statement for the rest of Scripture. That's the thesis statement for the rest of Scripture, and God's covenants are like the chapter divisions. So, the way in which God unfolds this thesis statement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 is through these, these covenants that He makes with His people. He advances the story of redemption. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 34, uh, Jeremiah the prophet prophesies about this coming new covenant. And he says that this new covenant is not going to be like the old covenant. It's going to be, in many ways, categorically different. And it makes sense. When we describe something as being new, it's going to be different than that which is old. It's not always better, but in this case it's better. And so Jeremiah says that the new covenant is going to be categorically different than the old covenant. The old covenant refers to the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that encapsulates most of the Old Testament. 
And so when you look at, at a passage such as Exodus 24, Exodus 24 is one of the passages which describes the beginning of the Mosaic Covenant. We read this in Exodus chapter 24, verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what's going on here is this covenant, this Mosaic old covenant is being enacted. And Moses is sprinkling the people of Israel with blood. Again, the blood of the covenant. Covenant and blood go hand in hand. Now, what does this symbolize? Well, this symbolizes that the people of Israel are essentially saying, do to me unto these dead animals, the blood of which has just been sprinkled upon us, do to me as these dead animals, if we fail to keep the terms of this covenant. Or as one pastor says, they're essentially agreeing to the terms that say, obey or you will pay. They are taking upon themselves the blood of the covenant and saying that if they are disobedient to the terms of this covenant, their blood will be shed. Now, of course, this happens on an earthly, earthly realm and not uh, in terms of their heavenly salvation. But nonetheless, it's the people who are taking the blood of the covenant upon themselves. Again, this is categorically different than what happens in the supper. In the supper, Jesus isn't sprinkling his disciples with blood or wine. Rather, he's saying this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, my blood, meaning he is going to shed his blood for the curses of the covenant that his people have earned. Again, Mosaic covenant, the people are sprinkled with blood. Jesus here is saying, no, this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. My blood is going to be spilt as the God-man. Well, if we think about one more covenant, the covenant that comes before the Mosaic covenant, Genesis chapter 15, we learn about another major covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 15, God is uh, enacting this covenant with, with Abraham, and he tells Abraham to gather all these animals and to kill them and cut them in two. Very ordinary part of covenant-making ritual. The cutting of a covenant. Abraham was called to literally cut these animals in two pieces. And normally in the ancient Near East, in a secular context, a lesser king and a greater king would walk between the halves of these two dead animals and they would say these self-maledictory oaths upon themselves. Do unto me as these dead animals if I fail to keep the terms of this covenant. Well, in Genesis 15, God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham and we read that a, a fiery smoking pot and a flame goes through these pieces of the dead animal, and you're left wondering, well, what in the world is going on? Well, this is a theophany. God's appearing in fire and smoke, and he is passing through the pieces while Abraham's taking a nap. Abraham doesn't pass through those pieces. What this tells us is that God is essentially saying, do unto me as these dead animals if I fail to keep the terms of the covenant, but it's more than that. He's saying, do unto me as these dead animals if Abraham and his people disobey my law. He's taking responsibility for all of the curses of the covenant, which then is directly fulfilled when Jesus raises that cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. You remember Abraham? You remember how he was taking a nap while, while God passed through the pieces? Well, I am fulfilling that promise. I am here to take upon myself the curses that Abraham and all of his descendants has, have earned. I'm here. I'm fulfilling it. And so when... Jesus tells us to remember, 
to remember. We are called to remember his substitutionary sacrifice, which is in fulfillment of those ancient covenants of Abraham and Moses, where Jesus himself takes the blood of the covenant for us and our salvation. There's a time to remember, to remember the death of Christ. And this is, you know, one of the reasons why, um, as a, a brief side note, you know, we see a lot of similarity then between the new covenant and the Abrahamic covenant, and we see more dissimilarity between the new covenant and Moses. Whenever the New Testament is, is making a contrast with the Old Testament, it's usually Moses. But when the new covenant is speaking about Abraham, there's radical continuity, which plays a significant part in our argument for infant baptism. Because whenever Abraham's on the table, there's pretty much direct continuity with the new covenant. Abraham's the paradigm for the new covenant, not Moses. Abraham is, and thus Paul then sees a lot of continuity between circumcision, which is an Abrahamic institution, and baptism. Well, the Lord's Supper, yes, is a time to remember, is a time to look forward, but it's also a time to enjoy the moment, <laughs> to enjoy the moment, to enjoy what's actually going on in this meal. So the Lord's Supper is a communion. It's a communion with the body of Christ in the present. And again, this is oftentimes what happens in our ordinary meals. We don't want to just be thinking about the past, think about the future. We want to enjoy the moment, enjoy the, the festivities and the good food and company which is before us. And so too, the supper is a time to enjoy the moment. So we see here in this passage, Jesus says, as he says in the other uh, synoptic gospels where he institutes the supper, he says, this, again, holding the bread, he says, this is my body. This is my body. And then he takes the cup and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's saying that when you partake of this simple bread and wine, I'm present. You have communion with me. This is my body. This is my, my blood. And the apostle Paul interpreting Jesus' words. So again, the epistles interpret the story and drama of Scripture. The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, 16-17, interpret Jesus' words when Paul says, the bread which we break, is it not the communion with the body of Christ? And the cup which we bless, is it not the communion with the blood of Christ? Paul's saying that when you enjoy, when you partake of, of, of this cup and of this bread, you are having communion with the body and blood of the risen Christ. We confess in Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one that we belong body and soul, life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what's being, uh, Jesus is saying here is that this meal is one of the means in which this, this bond, this relationship, this union is strengthened. It's strengthened as we hear the word preached, yes, but it's also strengthened when we eat bread and wine. Because it's meant to assure us in a physical way that we truly belong to Christ. Yes, we're assured through the word audibly, but the Lord wants us to be assured in a physical way that we are truly members of the risen Christ. And thus he's given us bread and wine to partake of something that we can smell, touch, taste, and see. 
So it's a communion with the risen Christ, but it's more than that. Now, in the first century, it was common for the Passover meal to be celebrated within the confines of an individual family unit. Individual family unit would celebrate the Passover together. But notice here, Jesus isn't celebrating this meal with his natural family. He's celebrating it with his new creation family, with his disciples. Which again is another point that teaches us that Jesus sees the new creation family as being more central, more fundamental than one's natural family, especially when one's natural family exists outside of the kingdom. And so this supper is a union, a communion with the body of Christ here on earth. There's multiple references to the body of Christ. It can refer to the actual body of Christ in heaven, but it also can refer to the ecclesiastical body of Christ, the body of Christ in the church. And so it's a communion with one another in the local church. And when we come together and partake of the supper, we are manifesting our union with one another, a union that's not based on political allegiances, a union that's not based on a common cultural identity, a union that's not based on a common socioeconomic status, but a union that's based on a common identity that we all belong to Jesus Christ. Why? Well, again, this is a new creation institution. The church is an embassy of the age to come. And so when we come together on Sunday mornings, we come together based on that identity of belonging to Jesus Christ. In the age to come, our cultural identities will fade away, and all we will have is that common union and communion with the risen Christ. That's what will unite us. These other identities aren't bad, but they belong to this present age. And this is uh, institution that belongs to the age to come. And so the supper is a reminder that our fundamental union with one another is based on our common confession and union to Christ. And so this meal is a meal in which we have real and vital communion with the body of Christ in heaven and the body of Christ here on earth. A real communion with the body of Christ in heaven and the body of Christ here on earth. Well, lastly, you'll see that Jesus says in verse 19, he says, do this. That's an imperative. Do this. Celebrating this meal is not an option for the Christian church. This is a sacrament that was instituted by Christ himself. Do this. The question that comes to mind is how often? (laughs) Do this. Well, Jesus, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us how often. Jesus just says, do this. Do this in remembrance of me. But scripture does point us in a certain direction. I think the direction he points us to is that this meal is to be a frequent meal among the body of Christ. You think of the apostolic pattern. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, Paul, uh, Luke says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, this meal was, so, was celebrated so often in the early church that Paul can describe corporate worship as the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread was a synecdoche to refer to corporate worship. Oh yeah, we gather to break bread, i.e. we gather for corporate worship. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul compares the supper to manna in the wilderness for the Israelites. That was a frequent thing that Israelites partook of. Each day, they gathered manna for their daily sustenance. And so too, this meal is, to, is given to us for our spiritual nourishment as we are in this wilderness, as we are an alien and pilgrim people waiting for our blessed hope. And so it's given to us 
to be a frequent meal. And this is why we as a church plant hope to, uh, as we move towards particularization, to celebrate this meal more often than just once a month. Again, there's Christian freedom with how often we do it, but we, we recognize this call to frequency and we recognize that Scripture gives us uh, two sacraments, the word, I mean, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is something that we can partake of every week along with the word to feed our souls in this life. I'd like to end with a quote, which I think is very helpful from one theologian describing the importance of, of having both word and sacrament in, in our services. Uh, this particular theologian says, when the service includes both word and sacrament, the saving work of Christ is always central and there is often a sense of completion. The promise has been given this day, not only in word, but in act. Here and only here do we have God's authority, not only to hear the promise, but to taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord has, experience isn't necessarily bad, but he's told us where our experience should take place. Our experience take, takes place when we partake of this common bread and this common wine. Well, Congregation of Christ, the Lord has instituted a meal. Yes, in one sense, this meal was the last supper for the disciples, but in another sense, it was the first meal, the first supper, as this is the meal that we all are called to partake of between the two Advents. And this is a meal that's festive. It's a meal that's nourishing. It's a meal in which we are meant to look backwards, look forwards, and to enjoy the present moment. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we... We give thanks to you for revealing yourself to us in your word. We give thanks that you have granted us this meal, this meal of sustenance for us as a, a weary pilgrim people in this strange and foreign land. Uh, we thank you that uh, you care enough for us, uh, that you are willing to feed us, you are willing to condescend to us using uh, things as simple as words and as bread, as simple as bread and wine to, to nourish our souls, O oh Lord. And we just pray that your spirit would accompany these means, that it would have this accomplished effect of assuring us, comforting us, and then being that proper foundation from which we can go forth and love our neighbors. We ask all these things in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please stand as we seek to respond to this word which we have heard by uh, turning to number 22a, 22a, which is, are the words that Jesus himself will quote as he uh, sheds his blood on our behalf. So 22a, we'll be singing stanzas one through four.
You may be seated. This time we will continue to worship our God through the giving of an offering, asking that the Lord would bless these gifts for the furtherance of his kingdom. Please stand once again as we continue to respond to God's word by singing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your order of worship. receive now God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift upon you his countenance and give you peace. Amen. Well, we will now enjoy a time of uh, fellowship and refreshments, and then at about 11.15, we'll gather once again for our catechism service. So please enjoy. Enjoy. 